I never really fell under the spell believing that like I was the only editor that could do what I did. I know there are other editors that do what I do. I often sent my clients to them when I was too booked, but um, I still hadn't really like made that leap to really owning like, no, what is it like the behind the behind or the under the under, like that thing I'm really doing that changes my life and changes other people's lives. And not only had I not named it, I hadn't even dreamed that like actually that that was where my business sweet spot lay, you know? Scaling up often requires zoning in. And what I mean by that is that most of the time, a business doesn't actually scale up the whole of what it can do. It scales up one small piece of the puzzle. The result might be focusing on a particular outcome you can create for clients. It might be focusing on a particular aspect of your methodology. It might be creating leverage from a particular component of the brand. It might even be a particular feature or component of your value proposition. And quite often, businesses choose the wrong thing to focus on. A business that's not operating at scale can be good at many things, but which one of those many good things will be the key to scaling up? It's easy to see how the wrong choice gets made. You're listening to What Works, the show that brings you candid conversations about what's really working to run and grow a small business today. I'm your host, Tara McMullen. My guest today had a business that resembles so many. One that required her constant input, expertise, and care just to stay afloat. While she felt like it was already a success in many ways, Katie Schultz realized that her business wasn't really meeting her needs. She wanted more of a challenge. She wanted more time. She wanted more money. So Katie started to look at how to scale her offer, a monthly mentorship for writers. This conversation is the story of her journey to do just that. We talk through the mindset shifts she needed to make, the experiments she ran, and the aha moment that made her realize she'd scaled the wrong thing. Now, let's find out what works for Katie Schultz. Katie Schultz, welcome to What Works. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Tara. Absolutely. All right. So um, let's start at the very beginning. I want to create some context here for everyone to understand just how much has changed for you and, and that process behind the change. So tell me what your business and your offer looked like before you decided to scale up. Sure. So just in a nutshell, my company provides transformative online curricula for serious writers by and large, that involves a few online classes and then my core offering, which has been in existence for 10 years, and that's called monthly mentorship. The majority of that time, it involved clients submitting 25 pages of creative writing on a set monthly deadline to me, and then they would get line-level feedback and a critique letter. So it worked for a while. And as that program grew, I spread the deadlines out. So I received the submissions the 7th, 14th, 21st, and 28th of each month. I turned them around pretty quickly, um, but it was the only program I was doing for many, many years. So I had 16 writers and I didn't have a project manager. I didn't have a publicist. I didn't even have my first book out at that point. So I was able to give it my all. I was also running it uh, basically using PayPal, personal checks, and a blog. <laughs> <laughs> So very simple. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. I think a lot of people can resonate with that approach. And I, I'm kind of curious about your state of mind in terms of the 
sort of like your your emotions or your even your personal identity in relationship to the workload of this business. Because to me, that workload of giving personal feedback to 16 writers every single month, week in, week out, month in, month out, Mm -hmm. that sounds very overwhelming to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm curious Mm -hmm. kind of how you responded to it personally. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I think for the first six to eight years, it really was just fine with my personality, my professional interests, and my creative needs. And then as I grew as a writer, and as my first book came out, um, it started to sort of not quite meet my needs. But I think it took me a year or two to realize that. And then by the time I realized it, (laughs) I was pretty entrenched. And my life circumstances changed as well. So about seven years into the 10 years of monthly mentorship, I, my book came out. I did a major website overhaul. I fell in love, started a family, stopped being a nomad and bought a house. Or as my husband likes to say, I bought a mortgage. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so all of that sort of happened in a relatively quick period of time. Uh, And there wasn't really time for me to solve this problem that I knew was happening. I just needed to keep making money with a skill set that I knew I had and I enjoyed well enough for the time being. Uh, But then when it didn't work, it really, really didn't work. And I sort of came up for air after the first year of my son's life and was able to acknowledge, yep. I'm still good at this, but I definitely need more challenge and engagement in my core offering just to stimulate my own needs and growth as an author. So I had moved beyond the work at the line level as well. And I wanted to be teaching those things. um, And I wanted to be practicing those things so that I could continue to grow, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it completely makes sense. And again, I think that a lot of people can resonate with that. Um, I think maybe not everyone actually takes action on making that change. I think a lot of people end up kind of stagnating in that area. So can you tell us how you initially approached making the decision to take the next step, to move Mm -hmm. on, to start the process of scaling up? Sure. Yeah. So um. Let's see. When I did that website overhaul, I quadrupled my prices. So I suppose that was actually the first experiment in scale, kind of by down downscaling, mm-hmm. if you will. I dropped from 16 writers to eight. Uh, so my work, my number of hours that I was working decreased. My income was about the same. And, but I wasn't re- reaching as many writers I, at that time, I added in a 90 minute webinar where we all gathered on zoom once a month. It was really enjoyable. And with just eight writers, it just like felt like such an awesome community and, um, deepened the program in enough ways to sort of like scratch that itch, if you will, for me to feel like I was getting a little deeper into the work that I personally also wanted to be doing. Mm -hmm. 
But again, it worked only for a very short amount of time. And I had also hired a publicist and a project manager. So my overhead was increasing. Ah. So I had to come up with something more. And in 2017, I decided to experiment in scaling This is a lot of this came out of work I did in feminist business school with Jennifer Armbrust, who you've also interviewed. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, I'm going to take that 90 minute webinar. And the first 60 minutes of it is a craft based lesson, always from a book that I'm reading that a lot of writers could benefit from. So why am I just talking to eight people? So I scaled the first 60 of those 90 minutes. I created a whole separate little program called Airstream Dispatches. It was kind of like a book club for writers. And I got 40 to 50 writers on board. It was super easy to run. It was a private Facebook group. They showed up for this 60 minutes of the webinar and they bought the book if they wanted. That was about it. That experiment felt like a success in the sense that all of a sudden I had $12,000 more revenue for 60 minutes. That was always already going to happen. And then after the 60 minutes, the Airstream dispatches writers signed off and my monthly mentee, that core group of eight, they stayed for like 30 more minutes of sort of deeper conversation. So that's how it looked in the first iteration. And it felt pretty good. And then it didn't. (laughs) If (laughs) you, yeah, yeah. tell us about that. What what did you see not working about that, or why did it stop feeling good? The numbers didn't add up. (laughs) Big surprise at the end of the year. It was like, oh wow, like I brought in twelve thousand dollars more, and I asked my project manager Heidi Johnson, who is a member of the What Works Network and is amazing, Um, and she. I said, you know, how much did this, how much did I pay you basically to support me in running this program? And it wasn't a tremendous amount, right? Mm -hmm. It was everything, every penny was accounted for and deserved and then some. So I, I finally said, I need to read this profit first book. Everyone's talking about it. It was even mentioned in feminist business school. So I read it and I, you know, I quickly saw that I basically had been paying myself on a sliding scale for a decade. And it was like, it was like humiliating. And thankfully he mentions humiliation in the book and like prepares you. Um, At least I had been running a viable business. Like I had been paying myself, Mm -hmm. you know, by the hour all along and I wasn't losing money, but it was not pretty. So I had to look again. After a quick break, you'll hear about the mindset shift Katie needed to experience to see her business in a new way. But first, a word from our What Works partners. What Works is brought to you by Mighty Networks. Let's make this fall the season you embrace simplicity for yourself, your business, and for your customers. Enough with all the apps and workarounds. It's time to bring your business and your customers together in one meaningful place online. That's where Mighty Networks comes in. When you start your own Mighty Network, you're creating a home for your business and your customers away from the hustle and bustle of traditional social media and free from the convoluted workarounds of the online education and coaching space. You suddenly have one place for your customers to hang out and meet each other, one place for your online courses, programming, or content, one place for managing your payments and customer database. Sounds pretty simple, right? Here at What Works, Mighty Networks has drastically simplified our business. 
Our Mighty Network has given us a way to deepen our relationships with our customers, build stronger foundations for our company, and create the potential for almost unlimited recurring revenue. Ready to simplify your business? Give Mighty Networks a try today. Start absolutely free of charge by going to MightyNetworks.com. That's MightyNetworks.com. What Works is also brought to you by the What Works Network. There's a lot of hype out there about running and growing a small business today. It's exciting. It's sexy. And the algorithms at our favorite social media sites are delivered to bring us those exciting, sexy headlines. Grow your business to seven figures in seven weeks. How to 10x your followers overnight. Why bots are the key to never having to talk to another human being again. Okay, sure. But what's really going on? That's the question we always come back to here at What Works. We've made it our job to provide the platform, curate the stories, and make the real connections between small business owners that allow the truth to rise to the surface. This month we're spending on scale is no exception. We're looking at the wide variety of options that you have for running your business more effectively and efficiently and scaling your capacity to make more money. Conversations like these are exactly what happens inside the What Works Network. Only instead of being on the outside listening in, you're on the inside participating in the conversation. This month, we're hosting a day-long live conversation about scaling up. It's a virtual conference featuring boots-on-the-ground experience and interactive sessions. You'll hear from Claire Pelletro on scaling up your marketing with advertising. You'll hear from Maggie Patterson on scaling a service-based business without losing the service. You'll hear from Natalie Gingrich about scaling your operations. And you'll hear from Christina Schwally about managing your cash flow while you scale. Personally, I can't wait. The Scaling Up Virtual Conference is only for members of the What Works Network. If you're not a member of the What Works Network yet, now is the time to join us. We've opened the doors to new members for a short time. To find out more and join us, go to explorewhatworks.com slash network. That's explorewhatworks.com slash network. Yeah, let's. I want to dig into that a little bit because... I think that there there is a serious mindset shift that happens between the feel like feeling cool, feeling good about paying, being able to pay yourself, right? Running a mm-hmm. business that is viable, that earns you money, that pays you for the work that you do. Mm-hmm. And then realizing that there is an opportunity to not just get paid for the work that you do and maybe even not get paid for the work that you do, but instead just get paid, like the profit Mm -hmm. part of the profit Mm -hmm. first. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about how that mindset shift started to take form as you read the book, as you started to dig into your own numbers. Can you kind of Mm -hmm. give voice to how that, uh, how, yeah, how that mindset shift took place for you? Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing is, is that I had a couple months where I was paying my project manager more than I paid myself. Mm. So that's, and that partly it was, it wasn't because the money wasn't in the account, but it was because I knew what was coming down the pike. And so I had to divide, you know, I had to like dole it out. (laughs) So, you know, that affirmed that I had to solve this problem. The second thing 
was that I would never, I would never pay her on a sliding scale. I mean, I would never say, Hey, this month is tight. Can I just pay you a little less? So why would I say that to myself? Um, the third thing was, and this came from feminist business school was like really just needing to extract myself from the business and the profit first model gave me a way in which to do that because I could say, okay, well, my owner's comp is going to pay the teacher. And eventually my owner's comp also needs to pay Katie, the director. And then long-term my owner's comp needs to pay Katie, the writer. And it, all of a sudden I had a roadmap that was readable, you know, not super complicated to reaching this dream, which is yes, pay Katie, the teacher, Katie, the owner and Katie, the writer. And then with my profit, which I had thought, oh, I'll never get there. It's like a pipe dream. What what my desires for my profit are, I want to be able to give money to anti-capitalist causes that are doing sort of boots on the ground work that is not in my nature to do mm-hmm. as a quiet, observant writer, but that I very much believe in. So uh, climate watch groups, for example, Um, deep green resistance groups. And I never thought that my work as a writer and a teacher could sort of justify or sync up with that other part of myself. And then when I realized, oh, I I could have this profit that, that could actually really make a difference in these other ways, it, everything just sort of clicked into place. And it felt like a whole business, a whole unified approach with, you know, that had dignity to it. Mm, I love that. So I think what you're getting at is something that is really important to this conversation around scale, which is that as you start to scale up your business and as you start to look at the potential to scale up your business, whatever it might look like, you start to run into um, having to look at your identity as a professional and as a business owner Mm -hmm. in a new way. And so even Mm -hmm. when you're talking about like, I know my owner's comp goes to Katie, the writer and Katie, the teacher and Katie, the director, like to me, those are different identities that you are uh, embodying in your business. And they are not necessarily identities that everyone who starts a business starts out thinking about, right? In Mm -hmm. fact, I would say the vast majority of us, right? Don't start out thinking about ourselves, our identities as CEO, as chief marketing operator or officer, Mm -hmm. as, you know, all these things that all the different hats that we end up taking on. And because we don't think as much about those identities, we miss opportunities to scale. Mm -hmm. So how has your, and because we're going to get into the numbers here and we're going to get into the nitty gritty of how this program and how your business has actually changed and evolved to scale up. So don't worry, guys, we're getting there. But I think this is really important. How has your identity changed from that early iteration of the monthly mentorship where you are delivering the hands-on services? to the identity that you have now being able to lead the program that you have now and work with people in the way that you work with them now? Mm -hmm. Well, before I was sort of the deliverer of a concrete good, Mm -hmm. which would be line level edits and a critique. And now I'm a curator and a shaper and I'm not the only expert in the room. So another way of putting that and this 
I can thank your podcast for giving me the language for this before I, um, I was not really working with my special sauce mm-hmm. <laughs> and my clients thought I was a special snowflake. I was never really, I never really fell under the spell believing that like I was the only editor that could do what I did. I know there are other editors yeah. that do what I do. I often sent my clients to them when I was too booked, but, um, I still hadn't really like made that leap to really owning like, no, what is it like the behind the behind or the under the under, like that thing I'm really doing um, that changes my life and changes other people's lives. And not only had I not named it, I hadn't even dreamed that like, actually that was where my business sweet spot lay, you know? Yes, I definitely know. (laughs) (laughs) And I think a lot of other people out there do as well. Okay, let's get into now the nitty gritty of of the changes that you've made and some of the the numbers then that those changes have been able to produce for you. So uh, how has the monthly mentorship program evolved? How did you re-envision it so that you could scale up on your own terms? What exactly are you delivering today to the people who work with you? When I reached the point where I knew I had a scaling problem because my core offering could never grow and I was never going to be able to pay myself what I wanted, which was $100 an hour after allocations, I hired help. I hired the Michelle Warner, who I learned about on your podcast. And through working with her, I was able, I think, to make the leap faster mm-hmm. and in a more profound way than I would have been able to do it on my own. Um, so we had a common language, uh, partly because we'd read a lot of the same books. And one of the things that we often referred to was the big leap and the unique ability. And I had read this too and decided my unique ability was synthesis. Through my conversations with her, I learned that I actually hadn't monetized my unique ability in that old iteration of monthly mentorship. Should I say more about that now or should I leap into what monthly mentorship does? Um, No, I would love to hear more about not monetizing this because I think I I just, yes, this is so good. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So what is synthesis? To me, this is how synthesis and my unique ability works. I When I read a book of fiction or creative nonfiction, I cannot help but synthesize the how of the writing into a lesson or a craft analysis that I then turn around and apply to my own work and use to help myself become a better writer. Mm -hmm. I, I can't turn it off. I mean... It's, it would be nice if I could turn it off. Like the only time I can turn it off is, is if I'm reading Cosmo or something, which I really don't ever care to write for, but like everyone needs a little bit of junk to read every yep. once in a while. So I had monetized really only one small result of employing my unique ability. That is by focusing on the line edits and critiquing writers. But even though all readers or excuse me, all writers need that at some point, And even though they were adoring the feedback that I gave them and I had a waiting list of clients, I was never actually giving them what they really wanted and needed or my full unique ability. So there's this quote from Steve Jobs, something along the lines of people don't know what they want. Mm -hmm. 
So don't ask them. Right. <laughs> and my mentees thought they wanted helpline editing, but what they really, really wanted was to be able to do what I did to their submissions without me. So they wanted the how, they wanted that thing, that unique ability that I can't turn off. And they wanted it forever. (laughs) So they needed help applying thinking to language, not rearranging language or rearranging their storylines. The way that hit me, and this is after like basically two years of self-study and hiring help to study business was uh, a moment of deep openness and fatigue. So I really had to work myself into fatigue in order to have all my defenses be down. And then the, the also there are two sort of other personal factors that were in the background. Personal factor number one, as an author, I had had a couple really big blows with my second book, mm. which I'm happy to say is now going to be published and comes out October 2019. But I was in a real low spot with it at the time. And then through a series of like freak accidents, my husband and I lost three pets over a span of six months. Oh my God. And if you are a pet person, you know that that is just like two of them were on the same day. So it was just like unreal. And when the third pet died, we had to put, it was a cat we had to put down. We were just like, there was nothing left to say. So we're drinking beer. We're watching Gravity Falls, which if you need like stupid brain candy, that's also kind of smart. Um, this is a great 20 minute cartoon that takes place in my native Pacific Northwest and will is hilarious. (laughs) Um, so we're watching that and there just was like nothing left, like no energy, no spirit left. And in the middle of like one of these brief episodes, I just had this epiphany and I paused the video and I looked at my husband and I said, you cannot let me forget this. And he said, what? And he thinks I'm talking about the cartoon or the cat. And I just said, I scaled the wrong thing. (sighs) They don't, they don't want more of that. They want to be able to do what I do to their writing And I just said, don't let me forget that tomorrow morning. I'm never reading more pages again. And I know what to do. And then we just kept playing the video. (laughs) And I I woke up the next morning and like, I had this lightness about me. Oh my God. Okay. So first off this, other than the pets dying, which is absolutely awful and devastating. And I can't even imagine, but the rest of the story feels very familiar. And again, I think it's going to feel familiar uh, to anyone who has reached this breaking point. I like, I love how you put that you had that moment of deep openness and fatigue. And that's what brought you to the point of being able to make this giant revelation that you had scaled the wrong thing. Um, So, all right, let's, let's hear it. What does the program look like? like today? um, And how did you end up scaling the right thing? Sure. So it was, it was so fun to get to rewrite the code, if you will, for this program, because it was already in me, like it's, it's part of who I am. So I actually um, enrolled in as soon as I knew, okay, I got to rewrite this code, and I'm not taking any more pages, like, what is it? 
what is the program? What's my pitch? I enrolled in um, Margie from Scholarships mm. free seven day e course on knowledge construction, mm-hmm. and I mean it was just a piece of cake because it was exactly at the right time. I had taken note. I had heard that podcast, and I was like, oh, I want to take that, but I'm not ready yet. And then as soon as I had had my epiphany, I thought, oh, I'm ready to build my knowledge. It's already in me. I just need to put words to it. Yep. So I took that. I answered the questions as they came into my inbox over the course of seven days. And that helped. And then from there, I sort of fit that content into a four-part program. Week number one, I send out an integrative assignment to my monthly mentees. So I'll use Loom to create this video and then there'll be some PDFs, basically texts and stories that we'll be reading. And they, that assignment is specifically curated to sort of guide them up to the brink of some of these synthesis epiphanies that they need to have. So it's what I do automatically and I'm giving them all everything they need in order to sort of make it a habit for themselves. But I don't do that finally for them. They have to do it themselves. Week number one, they don't turn it in. It's on them mm-hmm. to work with the materials. Week number two, if they need a little nudge to in fact engage with the assignment, which you know all these writers are vetted, so they typically don't. But if they do need a nudge, we have office hours for 60 to 90 minutes, they all call in on Zoom and um, it's a Q&A. So in this situation, yeah, I'm not the only expert in the room, but because I'm sort of hosting it like a traditional office hours, I probably am the one answering more of the questions most of the time. Mm -hmm. They might do a little screen share and like share a paragraph or a page of their writing if they're super unsure about something, but they've got to have a really pointed question to ask. We'll talk about the integrative assignment. If someone's got publishing questions, social media for others questions in there, they can throw that in there. All that's fair game. Week number three is three live writing sessions. So basically we all sign on to Zoom. When I say go, we write together for an hour in silence. We share a sentence or two at the end and then we hang up. Ooh, I love that. (laughs) It's a thing for writers and it sounds kind of weird, but just like the pressure is on. And then when I do it, I live... I share my screen live on Facebook so that people are seeing the blinking cursor of my story in real time, which is like oh my God. crazy, <laughs> but really invigorating. So you see like, this is how writing happens. It's slow. It's messy. There's some one-liners that are great. There's a lot of lines that aren't great. There's a lot of the cursor just blinking, but I want to sort of demystify the the real work of the writer by sharing my screen live in that really vulnerable way. So I'm doing that like with my writers at the same time and I'm paying myself to write while I'm at it. So those three, one hour, like one-offs. And then the fourth week of the month, we meet for a two hour long masterclass. The first uh, 40 minutes of that, the monthly mentees are partnered up with their partner and they go into zoom breakout rooms and I'll give them some guided questions to work through. And then the remainder of it, we come back together and this is where I'm really going to be working from my foundation and uh, going along with what I moved to teach and talk about. And we will all be sharing as well. That's where really we're all sort of contributing. So that's the gist of it. They never turn in pages to me. I can have up to 10 
nine or 10 writers and pull it off in about 18 to 20 hours of work a month, including prep. But I can scale up to 20 writers and only add a few more hours of work, maxing it out at 25 hours of work per week with 20 writers. Okay, so Katie said 25 hours a week here, and what she meant to say was 25 hours a month. So she can take the monthly mentorship from 10 to 15 members up to 20 and still only be working about 25 hours a month on that offer. And really, that's what scale is all about. It's about understanding the capacity that you have to serve more clients or more customers while working about the same amount to make that service happen. That's incredible. Okay. So can you dish on how that's changed the other numbers for you? How did the price evolve? How did your profit margin evolve? All that good stuff. Right. Um, That's the best part. I mean, not only do I get to do what I really want to do in less time and reach more writers, But before, when I had eight writers paying me $2,400 for this six-month program, I was maxed out, right, Mm at $19,200 that took about 25 hours a month to pull off. Now, um, I will be starting my first iteration of this new version of monthly mentorship this fall of 2019. I've got 18 writers on board. They're paying $3,000 to not turn their work in. (laughs) And that's $54,000 for a program I can run in 25 hours a month that only lasts six months. So that's amazing. (laughs) When I, it's, let's see, let me pull this up. When I break it down. So, well, this sort of, the next step is like how that breaks down into hourly and reverse engineering the program allocations, which I did with Michelle, which I can talk about Yeah, I'd love for you to talk about that. Okay. So the other thing that came out of all of this when I was working with Michelle, and so much of this had to do with just her deep listening and her willingness to flip the narrative and her willingness to ask me really good questions. The other thing that came out was that I'm an over-preparer. Big surprise. I think a lot of us are. And what can happen is, you know, capitalism rewards over-preparing mm-hmm. because it fatigues you and it keeps you sort of shut down. Um, and it happens when you learn how to run a small business in a capitalist economy or when you teach yourself how to do it, um, you learn unsustainable habits. So I learned to not rely on my existing skill set and foundation by over-preparing. I learned to expect perfection, which is a fast track to exhaustion. I learned to be afraid of experimenting because what if I failed, which is really not authentic at all. I learned somehow that I would need to reinvent the wheel when in fact a lot of good solutions already exist. So a lot of those habits died away and are I well, and I'm continuing to work with breaking those habits down. But in order to assure that I would not sort of revert, Michelle said, okay, well, you know, with this new life you have with a family and you're not a traveling nomad business owner author anymore, you know that you um, are only going to work 15 to 25 hours per week, including your time as a writer. Wow. 
you know that. And I know that, and I've been sticking to that model. I just haven't been able to make very much money because of it. She said, let's reverse engineer. You know that you'll work 15 to 25 hours a week. You know that you'll take three to four months off per year. You know that you want to pay yourself $100 an hour, definitely as Katie the teacher, and eventually as soon as possible as Katie the director and Katie the writer. What what does that look like when you plug it into the profit-first model and do your allocations? What that looks like with $54,000, actually, I I did give a scholarship, so we're going to call it $53,000 coming in just for the monthly mentorship core program of six months of my business year is that my owner's comp has almost $6,000 surplus that I can then bump over into a director's comp. All right, just a quick pause here. Katie said that she can pay herself out of owner's comp for the teaching that she does. What she meant to say was teacher's comp. And this is important. This goes back to something that Sean and I talked about in episode 232. In episode 232, Sean and I talk about how uh, there's often a misconception between uh, profit and labor on behalf of the business owner. And so what Katie is actually making a distinction about is how she's paying herself for her labor through a budget that is directed to labor, in this case, her teacher's comp, and then paying herself profit from the owner's comp. And my operating expenses, you know, just doing it via profit first allocations also has a nearly $6,000 surplus. So I've got all of a sudden about $12,000. What do I do with it after all my allocations? Well, that's about 116 hours of work at $100 an hour to be director. So that's sort of my next task is can I, can I do that? (laughs) The business of running my business, can it be done in those numbers of hours? And if not, you know, what kind of problems do I need to solve there? Also the surplus will, can go to cover because I have other programs that I do at different times of the year that will also generate a surplus. I'm happy to say it's going to cover $5,000 that I need to pay a marketing firm for the release of my novel this fall. That is not money that's coming out of me and my husband's accounts. My business is paying for it. And that's that speaks to that other part of my identity. And that, again, is where the business sort of starts to come into a whole. Like it, it, it does hold all of my identities. It can support all of who I am, even when sometimes who I am means that I walk in my office door, I clock in. I clock in and I put on Lady Gaga and I dance and I water my plants or I lie on my back and listen to my body and my mind and what they're telling me for 10 minutes because that is part of what it takes to not revert to habit, to not, you know, perpetuate this myth that harder work is better and to run my business sort of in this tight healthy, sustainable container that I've set myself up for. 
That's incredible. And I mean, that would be, I think, a really high note to leave things on, but I don't want to leave things there because (laughs) um, I think that, so I'm 150% on board with you around capitalism rewarding over preparing. And we have, you know, us having these really ingrained, established habits around working hard to earn more and, you know, the whole system that perpetuates those things for us. And I am also 150% on board with the way that you have started to break out of that system and built a business that supports new habits and supports a new way of looking at things. Um, And I think the sky's the limit on that. And at the same time, at least in my personal experience and working with lots of other people, shortly after making that leap, there tends to be a Mm -hmm. lot of feelings of guilt, (laughs) you know, like, Hmm. um, okay, I know this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I know I'm supposed to be listening to Lady Gaga and watering the plants and like thinking (laughs) about my business um, and not feeling like I have to quote unquote work. And also, shouldn't I be working right now? Like, I feel really guilty Mm -hmm. for not working. Have you Mm -hmm. run into those feelings of guilt? And how have you processed them if you have? What a great question. Um, Well, being a mom helps because you have to work with, I'm sure you and many listeners know, you know, shouldn't I be with my child Mm -hmm. right now? Shouldn't I this? Shouldn't I that? No, (laughs) I should be modeling a well-rounded lifestyle. And part of me includes being a creative entrepreneur and a creative writer. And I uh, talk about that (laughs) with my son, who's two and a half now. Uh, But yeah, there are days when, yep, maybe some of those feelings do come into play. And that's where I think it's really useful to have um, some rituals in place, for example, Sometimes I will walk into my office and close the door, you know, maybe put some music on and like I have this uh, essential oil that's Douglas fir and I'm from the Pacific Northwest, although I live in Appalachia now. And so I just like, I just smell it and I, you know, like cue like the Nirvana and Arcade Fire and right. Jam and like all of my youth. And it just like brings me back. It's like, yep, yeah, remember like before all these habits set in, you know, just touch into that space. Um, I have little slips of paper that I'll just write like first thought, best thought on um, to sort of break that habit mindset or that guilt mindset. Um, And then I have, I mean, there's other things, but I also have, you know, just some creative uh, business owners, like-minded business owners that I meet with once a month and we keep each other in check and we do gut checks and we hear, you know, like we call each other out in really kind, supportive ways when we hear that fear creeping in or that like leap to sell or that leap to, you know, produce creeping in and just have each other's back. Like it's okay to go slow. It's okay to experiment. It's okay to fail. It's okay to say you don't have the answer. So all of those things can sort of help, but yeah, I mean, it's, um, it is a, it is a re-education every day. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, Katie, what's one thing you're really excited about right now, other than the obvious, or maybe you want to just tell us more about the obvious. <laughs> hmm. Well, I'm excited to feel what it really feels like to teach and run my core offering from this new space, this space that's really more willing to be equal partners with my clients, to trust myself more and to trust uh, what it's like if I wait, you know, a little bit longer, 
before I answer a question or someone else answers a question, you know, there's that, there's that rule, like, uh, mm-hmm. wait seven seconds for an answer. <laughs> and sometimes I can only wait like two. <laughs> so like, what's going to rise up in that seven seconds, if you will, and that might be a metaphor that I could apply toward the future. Like, what am I excited for? Yeah. I'm excited for my novel to come out. I'm excited to cut myself that first check as director And also that first check as teacher, knowing that it includes paying myself for some of this time to write. Um, And I think I'm, I'm excited to see really what that, that sense of freeing and unfetteredness does to my writing on the page, which really at the end of the day is I'm a writer before I'm a teacher. I think that freeing myself from these critiques and some of these other constraints will absolutely change how I write. And that to me is, you know, that's the bottom line. <laughs> absolutely. Katie Schultz, thank you so much um, for this really candid look inside of how the process of scaling your business has changed. And I think even more importantly, how that has evolved your mindset around your role as a business owner and and all of the potential that you have in that role. Mm, Well, thank you. Thank you, Tara. I've learned a lot. Since recording this interview early in the summer, Katie has indeed scaled up to serving 20 writers in her monthly mentorship. The hard work of figuring out your special sauce really does pay off. Find out more about Katie Schultz and her monthly membership at katieschultz.com. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. This episode was edited by Sean McMullen. Our theme music is by The Shrugs. Get in on the candid conversations by becoming a member of the What Works Network. When you join, you'll get access to our Scaling Up virtual conference happening live on September 26th. Go to explorewhatworks.com slash network to join us. That's explorewhatworks.com slash network.